Bibles tonight, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. <clears throat> Sometimes it's hard to know exactly what to do with the truth that is given to us in Ecclesiastes. It can be hard to know how to apply it. Earlier in chapter 9, the teacher told us that the race is not to the swift, nor is the battle to the strong, because accidents happen. Right, Time and chance happen. Things like that might give us the idea that there's no point whatsoever to trying in life at all. No point in trying to do anything meaningful or accomplish anything because it seems like everything is sabotaged. And while that's true, if we're not careful to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance as we read this great book, we might miss its point. If we don't see it in light of Jesus and His work for us, it will only confuse us. And there's a sense here in which... Solomon's teaching on the meaninglessness and the futility of life in this world is actually meant to spur us on to a life well lived. The question for us is, what is a life well lived when we survey the meaninglessness and difficulty under the sun, aware of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world and has left us in it for a very specific purpose? As we come into chapter 11, the message is straightforward. You've actually heard it paraphrased before if you've seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne said, get busy living or get busy dying. Our lack of knowledge or certainty about the future is not meant to keep us from acting. It's not meant to keep us from living. But we very easily fail to act in our lives very often because we lack knowledge and because we have uncertainty. And so we often hesitate in many things until it's too late. When farmers aren't sure that they'll, um, they can sell their crop in a given year, they might let the land lie fallow. When business people aren't sure they can turn a profit, maybe they back out of a deal or don't invest and things like this. What, when we don't know that our work will be successful, when we don't know that, when we don't have guarantees, we tend to do nothing. But because our God is sovereign... We should not be paralyzed by our lack of knowledge, but use every opportunity to redeem the time that God has given us since we are sure of the end result. So let's pray. Father, I ask tonight that you would open the eyes of our hearts to hear you speaking to us in this text. God, sanctify me for the preaching of your word tonight. In this hour, be with me, God, I pray. Keep me from inserting myself into this passage in ways that will hinder the clarity of its truth for us. So, Father, again, fill me with your Holy Spirit, I ask you. Fill us all with your Spirit that we might hear and believe. And I ask this for the sake and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both here in our homes, in our community. Amen. Let me read the first six verses of Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Verse 1 clearly marks the beginning of a new section as it moves from the topic of politics and rulers to economics. This unit that's begun here will end in verse 6, since verse 7 will change the topic again from economics to rejoicing. So we'll look at verses 1 through 6 tonight as one unit. The teacher's audience among the nation of Israel uh, had undergone some major upheavals in their history and, and are or were during this time as this once relatively small Largely agricultural nation had become the passageway for all the international trade between Egypt and Asia and Europe. Undoubtedly, some Israelites had tried to join in that trade and be a part of it. In chapter 5, he talked about those who had lost their money in what he called a bad venture. Uh, Maybe this was a part of that. Seeing some people lose everything might make people think that you shouldn't risk anything or venture anything. You never know what's going to happen, so hoard your possessions. Protect everything. Don't take any risks. The problem is that this isn't safe or necessarily wise either. It doesn't really guarantee anything. And the adage is true. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Solomon is closing this book down, and he's beginning to talk about just how we ought to keep living in such a world, a world marked by meaninglessness and futility and as he brings to the forefront now, one literally filled with uncertainty. Cast your bread upon the waters, in verse 1, for you will find it after many days. That's a little risky. You're going to lose your bread, is basically what Solomon is saying. What happens to bread in the water? Right? It, it doesn't float very long. It gets waterlogged and it sinks or the ducks eat it and you never see it again. Bread covered in gravy and meat, very good. Bread covered in water, very gross. Right? So nobody, nobody wants that, and it, it goes away. It disappears. This, however, is the bread they baked back then. So think of you know, smaller pita bread pieces. These would probably float, and that's what he's saying. Put your bread in the water and let it float away. That's a metaphor for taking a risk. He doesn't literally mean that eventually you'll get that bread back. He means that sometimes in life you do things that are filled with risk, but you will get a return. So he's encouraging risks to some degree, but not foolish ones. Look in verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Spread it out. Storms happen, floods happen, accidents happen, delays happen. We know that time and chance happen. So take risks, yes, cast your bread on the water, but don't be a fool. Spread out your bread. Be wise. Divide your goods Diversify your investments because, or for, as he says there, you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. We're given a gateway, by the way, to the theme of this passage by the repetition of that phrase, you do not know, or some derivative of it, you know not. We see it four times in six verses. We see it in verse 2, verse 5a, verse 5b, and verse 6. So the rationale... For the counsel of this text, then, is our ignorance of things, what we don't know. And with the three imperatives that are in these six verses, in 1, 2, and 6, the commands, we come to understand that this passage is one of instruction. That's its purpose in light of our ignorance of the future. Our lives are filled with risks. We take risks all the time, even when we don't want to, necessarily. Picking a career, 
That's a, that's a bit of a risk, a calculated one, but a risk nonetheless. When you buy a house, when you travel, when you try different foods, when we select a surgeon, when we select a spouse, or even when we give money to the poor or give money to a charity. We have to be careful, though, that in our attempt to avoid risks in this life, we do not neglect to obey the commands of the God who is sovereign over everything. If God has told us in his word, and he has in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, I believe, or 57, that the labor we do in his name is not in vain. If that is true, then we ought to live lives filled with risks as the world would define it. If in making them, Christ is made more known by them. Leave the return to the one who does know the future, beloved. Given the potential for disaster or for an unwise investment or a poor return in our lives, we're often frozen by what is called analysis paralysis, right? So we, that's how we gauge what we do sometimes. So when it comes to giving, they might not use that money wisely. We're always faced with this when we see a, a panhandler, right? Should I give it? Should I not? Maybe I've told you before. Uh, in Brawley, this was a, a common occurrence in California. There was a place by there called the Slabs. It was like this, uh, you know, little pocket of free-thinking people that didn't have water, didn't have electricity, didn't want to live under the government's rules, didn't want to take showers, by the way, either. But they were always coming into town, and they'd stand at corners and beg. And there was a man and a woman one time. Um, they look like they're, you know, right out of Woodstock, and they have a dog, and they're holding a sign that says, uh, we're hungry. So I thought, well, I can't, I can't drive by that, right? So I stopped. There's a Burger King right there. I said, how would you guys like some cheeseburgers from Burger King? And I'm feeling very proud of myself for stopping and asking them. And the guy goes, uh, we're vegetarians. So could you get some bean burritos from the Del Taco down there instead? Yeah, I guess. Right? I mean, how hungry are you? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's things like that that make you say, I, it, I, they're just going to spend it on booze. They're just going to spend it on drugs. It may be. I'm not your Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you what to do in that situation, and I mean that. But there are things we need to consider, right? At, at Panera right now um, in Tridelphia. I'm up there on Fridays. I love to study in there. It smells good. It's quiet. And uh, when you pay now, they're saying, would you like to round up to help fight childhood cancer? Uh, so when I tell you this story, I'm not, I'm, I'm not bragging. Right? It's change. It's, it's not a sacrifice. You understand? That's not why I'm telling you this story. Okay? And everybody says yes. Who's going to say no? Right? Of course you round up to help childhood cancer. Who doesn't want to help that? But here's the thing. I don't know where that money's going. I don't know that it's going to be used for childhood cancer research. And my hope is that it is going to fund that. That's an extremely worthwhile cause. We want to be involved in that. We want to help. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful cause. I hope that's what it's going to. I don't know that that's what it's going to. You never really do. And we've read stories about how charities can misuse funds and all this. So all that's going through your mind, right? You're, we're always trying to gauge every situation. And But here's, here's another thing that in the moment is probably more important, I guess. Imagine that I say no because I don't know where the money's going. And again, I don't want to pretend that that's never a wise thing to consider. Of course it is, especially when you're giving a lot. When it's just change, it, it, it's kind of irrelevant. But here's the thing. If I say no to that Friday after Friday after Friday, 
And the, the, the one or two ladies that rotate that cashier shift come into our church and find out that I'm the pastor and I won't give to support childhood cancer from my change. It's over. I've turned them off to the gospel. Those are, in other words, there may be more to consider than just, I might lose some money here. Right. And again, when it's change, it's, it's, it's easy, right? I'm not trying to make it more than it is. I'm simply saying that beloved, we need the mind of Christ. We need to be thinking, um, you know, how, what, if, if you try to calculate all the risks, you're, you're going to fail. Just sometimes it's best to just, just give, just take the chance. Maybe it's not going where we hope it's going. We hope it's going to fight childhood cancer, but if it isn't, at least I haven't put a roadblock in the way of that person, right? So these are things we often have to consider. And I always think about, like, like with, uh, I'm going to get back on track here. I don't want to be here all night, and I'm sure you don't either. But I do think sometimes um, Jesus hung on the cross for me until he died, knowing that I would spurn what he was doing for me. And he stayed up there. So... It's not necessarily always bad to give when it might be used for what you didn't intend. Sometimes the giving is the point, right? So these are things we ought to keep in mind. In other words, faith in Christ might be revealed in the risks involved with our money, with our time, things like this, our resources. It's required of stewards, however, that they be found faithful. That's it. It's not required of the steward to guarantee a certain return. That's not what God requires of us. We plant and water. God gives the growth. That's the way it works. It never changes. It's God who determines the return of what is sown. And if any labor we do in his name is not in vain, then we don't need to worry about anything, right? We want to be wise. We don't want to be foolish, but those terms have to be defined in light of eternity. It's God who determines the return of what is sown. So use your talents, so to speak, as Jesus gave them in the parable of Matthew 25. But in verse 2 here, rejection can happen. Disaster can happen. So do more good, not less. Right? Spread that out. Do more good, since the potential for disaster is everywhere, then make sure you spread your wealth out wide so that disaster doesn't take all of it from you and ruin every return. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, he says. We tend to use the principle of wisdom to justify our lack of risk, right? Well, God wants us to be wise. And again, he does. I hear that all the time as an excuse to keep from taking risks. But beloved, again, what is wisdom? What is wise in light of eternity and the word of our Lord Jesus? And if Christ will be made known by the risk that you take, then take it, right? Just take it. It will come back to you. It will not be in vain. That's the promise. Remember, we're not given our own time. We're given a moment to live in God's time. It is our Father's world. We are stewards in this life, beloved. We are not owners. We don't own anything we own. God owns everything we own. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, Jesus said in Luke 12:15. So our lives are not defined, their worth, their wisdom by what we're able to keep. Wisdom is not determined by how much we have when we die. Wisdom is justified by her children. Our Lord Jesus says in Luke 7:35, "Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, 
will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Luke 6, 38. The principle that guides new covenant giving for Christians under the new covenant, us, is the lavish grace of our God poured out on us, not adherence to the law, and therefore a percentage, beloved. Hear God's word. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You're not going to lose your salvation by not giving, but he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right? For God loves a cheerful giver. The implication being cheerful giving is not possible when you're giving under compulsion. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. It is very easy to neglect risk for the kingdom of God when we think things like that having given our 10%, we've given what's required. Therefore, our obligation to God with our money has ended Beloved, that's what happens when we commit the hypocrisy Jesus identified in Mark chapter 7. We neglect the superiority of the new covenant by trying to adapt the giving principles of the old covenant for the church. We just try to do a replacement of the church over Israel, right? And we take the giving principles of the law and put them on the church. Here's the thing. A tithe under the old covenant law was about 24 to 26% of an Israelite's total income, not 10%. The 10% tithe comes from the Catholic Church. That's where the word comes from. Tithe is how they would say that in Latin. It doesn't come from Scripture. And this is not the storehouse, right? This is not the storehouse. This is a building that we made that God's people, that God's house gather in. This is not the storehouse. That's not what guides new covenant giving. That's what guided old covenant giving. We need to remember Paul's admonition in the book of Galatians that first of all, first of all, you and I are not under the law. Period. But secondly, if we want to show or prove our righteousness by obeying any one point of the law, do you know what we've done, Paul says? We put ourselves back under the obligation to obey all the law, which Jesus has proven we cannot do. So by attempting to obey any one part of the law, we will produce no righteousness that God will accept. We have decided then, as Jesus warns about in Mark 7, to focus on the percentage we give, even as new covenant believers, not under the law, to substitute for things. Things like taking risks with our money. Right? When you budget, it may not be a risk. It might be. For some it is. For some it isn't. We've decided to focus on the percentage we give to substitute for our fear of taking risks, for our fear of losing, maybe even to cover how much we love our money. We try to cover up our lack of righteousness with math. Giving under the new covenant, because when we talk about risk... Money's really what we're talking about here. 
how we use our money. Giving under the new covenant is not setting aside a certain percentage off the gross or the net. Nobody really knows, right? That's how you know you're dealing in legalism. I don't say that to be offensive, all right? That's how you know you're dealing in legalism. We start splitting hairs. Do you know why we we do that? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. So we have to make it up. So you have Christians that say it's got to be off the gross. The other Christians say it's got to be off the net. Who knows? Who knows? It's almost like if he didn't tell you, don't worry about it. Right? But we don't do that. Giving under the new covenant is a way of life. That's determined, according to Paul, by the abounding grace of God to us. In that text in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Risk, then, as the world defines it, losing things in this life, that's a way of life for the one Jesus has saved. That's a way of life. In other words, God would say, through Christ, by the Apostle Paul... That this type of giving is the means by which you will know how sufficient Jesus is for you. The more sparingly you give, the less likely you are to realize how sufficient he is. The more bountifully you give, the more likely we are to realize how sufficient he is for us. One of the very reasons God makes his grace abound to us is so that we will risk with our money. Listen again to how Paul says this. And how it relates to the idea of risk as we would define it as earth dweller. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The more sparingly you give, the less work you will be abounding in. The more bountifully you give, the more work you will be Abounding in. God has given His grace so that we might be abounding, beloved. The basis of giving now is not the law then. It's not that there's this regulation and you have to keep it. That's not the way it works. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's the regulation. As he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or out of compulsion. Well, what is the law? It's compulsion. Do this and you will live. Don't do it and you will die. That's not how or why we give as new covenant believers. Now that Christ has come and purchased our salvation, now that God's grace abounds to us even in our sin, we have so much that we could give everything and lose nothing. That's the principle for giving now. God's grace that's been lavished on us is the reason we give now. He is sufficient for us so that in all things, at all times, we would abound in every good work. Those adjectives tell us everything. And in this sense, it is in risking. It's in giving that we will learn the sufficiency of the Lord in His grace for us. Risk is actually a means to the stability of our souls and the grace of God, beloved. So cast your bread on the water. You know what? Give a portion to seven or eight. And don't worry about what you might lose or won't come back to you here. His grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you. That's how I decide what to give, right? Risk is an earth term. It's an under the sun term. If I'm going to gain by losing, how am I ever risking? In other words, you can only use the word risk if you're talking about what's here that's temporary and I can't hold on to anyway. 
Jesus just defines terms or redefines terms for us. No believer loses what is given in the name of the Lord. Not one. No matter what is done with it here. Not a second of time. Not a penny of money. Nothing is lost. Christ is everything for us. He's sufficient for us. Risk in His name. There's no chance of loss. Only the promise of eternal return. The Tim McGraw song, Live Like You're Dying, because we are. And home is on the other side. Verses 3 and 4, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. We can't perfectly predict disasters, right? But there are some things we can know or we do know. There are some certainties we can observe in nature, for example. Basically, generally speaking, we know when it's going to rain. We can figure that out, more or less. We know that where a tree falls, there it's going to lie unless somebody moves it. In other words, a fallen tree is not going to get back up. It's not going to break the laws of nature. We can count on that. So there are some things we can know by observing nature. But we're not meant to make our decisions based on such certainties is what Solomon is pushing us to here. We're not meant to take the certainty we can have as an indication that we always have to have certainty before we make decisions or take risks. Again in verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the, he who regards the clouds will not reap. Farmers certainly prefer ideal weather for sowing and reaping, absolutely. They study the weather, they study the conditions until they know them very well, probably better than most meteorologists just by virtue of their experience over time. They generally know when it's the best time to sow their crops. But if they wait for the perfect conditions, if they wait for perfect weather, they might not ever sow. And if they sow nothing, they reap nothing. At some point, then a farmer has to take a risk. It's the same in many walks of life for all of us. If if we're overly cautious, we won't move. If we move, yes, we might lose some things. But if we don't, we'll gain nothing. That is certain. So in verse 5, He comes back to what we don't know. That's what he's dealing in here. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In ancient times, even more so than today, they didn't really have a clue how life developed in a mother's womb. But even with the great medical advances that have been made in the last two to 3,000 years, we still don't know how it is that the soul comes into the body. We, we, we don't know how God does this, how God breathes that life into the bones, into the embryo uh, in, in a mother's womb. We, we just don't know the way that he does that. We don't know all the details of that. So in this text, the point is, just like that, that mystery, you don't know the work of God, who, by the way, makes everything. Not just the child in the womb, but everything. There are things about him we don't know. We don't know the work of God in this way. We are as legitimately clueless about how the soul begins in the womb as we are of what God is going to do next in our lives. We don't know his plans for the future in our lives, I mean. What it will look like specifically for me. So we live with a great deal of uncertainty. But there's one thing we do know, beloved, that God makes everything. Nothing in the world is outside of his control. None of the potential disasters are a surprise or are unforeseen to him. He knows the weather. He knows the times and seasons. He knows how the breath of life comes into the baby in the womb. God makes everything. 
This is the means to stability under the sun, where everything is meaningless and futile. It's this, that God makes everything. So we don't need to wait for visible, absolute certainty before we act in His name. Isn't it funny how we think faith means waiting for God to open doors, right? That sounds like sight to me. Wait until you know the door is open and then move. Wait until you can see that the path is clear in front of you and then go. Wait until you know, then act. If you act before you know, you're being irresponsible. Beloved, that's walking by sight, not faith. God's control of the world, the fact that he's made everything... The fact that he alone is sovereign means if his word has not forbidden something, do it and be at peace about it. Don't live with such anxiety. Don't become paralyzed by your analysis. Beloved, life is not a game where God is constantly putting a couple doors in front of us and things only go well if we figure out which one is open. That's not the Christian life. Gideon's fleece in the book of Judges, is not the paradigm for decision-making. Okay? It, it's not normative. It, it, it happened to Gideon. You ever notice? Nobody else does that. <laughs> it's, it's so, don't we all, we're always like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put out my fleece and buy this house or not buy this house. Well, you can. But, I mean, I've, I've yet to find a dewy fleece in the morning or a not. I mean, there always depends on whether or not there's dew on the ground, right? So, The Spirit does not abide in us so that we would live so paralyzed that we can't take a step in anything. Again, if His Word does not tell you what to do, do what you believe by faith and trust Him. Trust Him. We're so paralyzed because we walk by sight and call it faith. We want all the doors open. We want the path clearly marked out. We want all the results certain. Right? Because then we think, then we always say this, and I want to be careful, I don't want this to be offensive, but we always say, you know, I, I know I have peace about it. I know that I can do this because I have peace about it. Beloved, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean it. Where is that the guide for decision making? And, and look, we usually have peace about what we wanted to do in the first place. I have peace about what I wanted. <laughs> well, yeah. We want, so I'm, I'm not, I don't want to, I just would say, don't use non-biblical paradigms. So it's not that they're evil, unbiblical, but just don't use non-biblical paradigms to live your life. Not when you have the Holy Spirit and God has told you, live by faith, not by sight. Beloved, He will catch you when you blow it. Now look, we're not trying to blow it. None of us are. Right? But don't think like God's standing over you for the rest of your life going, I told you not to marry that lady. No, I had this lady for you. You picked that one. I told you to go to this college, not that one. You missed it. You missed it. I wrote it on your mirror in the steam, and you were shaving your neck. You didn't even see, right? So I tried to tell you, but hey, that that's... What would you think of your earthly father if all he ever did was hang over your head your failures? Beloved, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The Holy Spirit will guide you, beloved. Again, if he's told if, if God has told you that adultery is a sin, you don't get to have adultery because you felt peace about it. Right? I just I, I just I, I have a friend whose wife left him because 
she, she went down to see her mom who lived in Alabama, met up with an old boyfriend. They met up at a restaurant or something by accident. And she came back and told my friend, listen, God told me that I married the wrong guy. This is the guy I should have been with. This is the guy they had for me. So I'm leaving you and I'm going with him. Oh, okay. You know, that's why I don't let Christy go to Newark. Because I don't know. I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's a total joke. All right. <laughs> I'm not even looking up there, man. That's a total joke. I know. I know, man. I, I, I'm serious, beloved. There's, that's a total joke about it. just seemed right. But um, we enter the how do, how do we enter the promise? We, we enter the promise by faith. Here in this life, the doors won't always open. The path won't always be clearly marked out. The results won't always be certain. That's not the life we're given in this world. That's not what it means to be a Christian. That now you have this secret decoder to all the right decisions. There are things God has laid out that we know this is right. I, I can't go against that, right? I, I can't try to justify my sins when the word has been clear. None of that. But most of us are struggling in the things where we don't know what God would have us do because we think that's how it works. That he's just watching over us like, you're going to pick the right door? You're going to pick the right door, right? We paralyze ourselves. I know I've, I've, I've said this, but, but we do this to one another in, in all our decisions. We, like when a young person, I, I, I used that as an example earlier, um, maybe tries to choose a college. And you hear them say things like, I just want to make sure I go to the college God wants me to go to. I would say, I, I don't, I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying, what verse would you use to know you've picked the right college? And, and if, if you would say, well, I, 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 go, I know by the one that I have peace in going to, that's fine. Just where do you get that? Right? Don't, don't live by your own understanding. Right? That's wisdom. Trust not, lean not on your own understanding. Don't do that. Don't try to spiritualize that. Now, don't, we don't want to be foolish. Don't go to a school that you know would be bad for you. Sometimes the Christian schools are bad for you. I, I went to Mount Vernon Nazarene College when it was still a college just out of high school. I was around more drunk young people in college than I ever was at parties in my high school. I mean, that, that's what all the Christian kids did. You go to college so you can drink, right, and do all kinds of stuff. That, that was, that's, that's what kids did. You know, not me. I was... Pure as the driven snow, but everybody, that, that's, that's what a lot of kids do. You know, you're just, you're just waiting to get away from mom and dad. Use what you know from God and then act. You know, it, it, I, I think I've told you this before. I'll try to say this quickly. It just always stands out in my mind. I was driving to a bookstore with my dad. I've been dating Christy for four years. My dad said, son, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, um, do you have any plans on marrying Christy? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, someday, absolutely. He said, well, what, what are you waiting on? I said, well, Dad, I don't know if she's the one that God has for me. He said he, he was real quiet, which is never good, for a couple minutes. And he said, he said okay, he said, um, where did you get that, that you have to wait for the one that you know is the one God has for you? So we, we do this to kids. We, we build into them non-biblical things. God has somebody out there for you. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe you'll be single. But we don't talk about that, right? Because we have the same dreams for our kids that everybody in the world has for their kids. If you don't get married, your life is less valuable, right? But we don't talk about that.
but he said, what verse are you using? Son? And I said, well, you know, just I've been told, you know, you got to wait for the one God has for you. He said, he said, son, is Christ, is Christy a believer? I said, yes. He said, then do it. Well, that's what you know. That's what I know. I can't be unequally yoked. Right? So I could pray about it for 50 years, waiting for something that God generally doesn't do. Set a bush on fire. Right? Yes or no. That, that's not the way it works. When you've not been forbidden by the Word of God, by the principles in the Word of God, beloved, live by faith. Act. Risk. Do it. Live. Right? Just live. We need not be so uptight. And we live in such a way as to eliminate the need for faith. Risk is a relative term. Right? And just by the way, you know from the joke I made earlier, it was Christy that was taking the big risk, not me in our marriage. But that's often the way it works. Verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Do you see that? Do you see his rationale here? It's our lack of knowledge that is the basis for sowing. Right? It's the lack of knowledge that is the basis for not withholding your hand. Because what we lack, our God has infinitely and exhaustively. Knowledge. So we're safe. We're safe. That's what Solomon is telling us. Use what God has revealed. Absolutely. Don't act foolishly. Don't act carelessly. Cast your bread on the water. Give a portion to seven or eight. Plant your field. Right? God is sovereign. He knows everything and He's promised you eternal life. You belong to Him. Beloved, live. I had a pastor one time, so helpful to me. I was trying to decide whether or not to go to this church and be a youth pastor. I was only 18. It would have been a disaster. But he sat down with me and he said, and the way that he helped me was, because I'm praying, waiting for an answer. He said, if you were going to buy a car, write out all the pros and write out all the cons. And if the cons outweigh the pros, then don't buy the car. There's, there's no need to be foolish, right? That's not a bad way to live. You, you, don't, you don't want to be foolish, but at the same time, risk is worth it. Risk is worth it. Not when it comes to buying a car. That's not what Jesus left us here for. But use what God has revealed. He knows everything. He's promised you eternal life. Live. Redeem the time that the owner and creator of time has given to you. We won't always know how things will turn out. We don't know if there will be a ton of fruit, a little fruit, or maybe no fruit whatsoever. We don't know this. But we do know that God is Lord over everything. We do know that it's God who gives the growth. We do know that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and in his hand is the life and breath of every living thing. And no matter how the nations rage or how the peoples plot in vain or what disasters might come, all that the world does is in vain for God has set his king on Zion and he is going to reign. That's how this is going to pan out. It's those without him that have no hope, beloved, in their risking that must calculate risks to the nth degree. Because if they lose what they have in this world, they really have lost everything. This is not you and I. This is not you and I. Jesus will win, beloved. So risk. Live. None of your labor in the Lord is in vain. That's the context in which I'm speaking. 
risk in the name of the Lord for the sake of the Lord. This is not in the Bible so that we buy the Lamborghini when we make minimum wage. That's not why this is in the Bible. In the light of Christ, this is in the Bible for the mission we have in a world that can't comprehend the gospel we preach and is openly hostile to our Savior. Now we're talking about real risk, right? I heard a story once about a missionary who came to speak at a church. And the pastor of that church's daughter, lovely, young, single lady with the world in front of her, was convicted by the missionary's message to forego college, forego marriage, sell everything she had, take everything she had saved, and go to Southeast Asia as a missionary to unreached people groups there. That was her decision. Her dad, the pastor, was beside himself. How could she make such a foolish decision? How could she waste her life, waste all her potential? The church didn't understand. Everybody begged her not to go, begged her and begged her. The pastor finally told her, honey, if you go to a place that dangerous, I'm afraid you won't come back. And this young lady told her dad, I know, daddy, but Jesus didn't call me to come back. Jesus called me to go. I hope that story is true because I love that story. Beloved, we must evaluate our lives in light of eternity. Right? The real risk is not losing our lives. That's gain. The real risk is not losing our money. It's not losing our position. It's not losing our preferences or our power. That's not the risk we're taking. The real risk is not giving our lives away for the name of Jesus Christ. That's the real risk. Now, again, you don't have to go to foreign lands or hard places or do hard things as we would define them to do that, to, to risk for the name of Christ. Don't, don't make it unattainable so that you can distance yourself from it, right? It, there are some that maybe have the passion in them to go to these places. Praise God. We'll always, as a church, I hope, support that and not question it. But understand, the call of the gospel is hard no matter where you are. And, and, and the argument is a good one. Who really has it harder to stay faithful? The suffering church in Azerbaijan or the affluent, blessed American Christian? Who's in more danger of compromise? Right? Who's in more danger of living by sight and not by faith? Who's being forced to be real or who could get by with faking? Right? So... That's an interesting conversation, but for most of us, risk is just going to be for our neighbors and for our loved ones and our classmates and our co-workers. That's who we're going to risk being rejected by and being hostile to us or cutting us out of things or our loved ones, our classmates, our co-workers, our neighbors. They're, look, they're not any less important in the eyes of God than the unreached tribesmen in the Amazon, right? It's, it's, they're both equally lost, equally in the dark. They're just in different parts of the dark. God's going to raise up laborers for both, but he has for Moundsville. They're sitting in front of me tonight, right? I, I, we're praying for the Lord to send laborers into the harvest of unreached people groups. The laborers for this harvest are right here, right? They're right here. Many more were here this morning. 
More will be here Wednesday night. You are the laborers for this harvest. You do understand this. That's not an identity you get from me. That's who God has made you to be. Beloved, that's the scripture. You and I live here because they're going to grope in the darkness for salvation. They don't know that's what they're looking for. They're not seeking God as we understand it. Paul is clear about this in Romans 3. But they are seeking salvation in something. We're here that they would know where it is. Right? And so it, we must obey the Great Commission. And it will mean risk. It meant it for our Lord and we are not above our Master. Just Jesus calculated His risks and said, I'll die. Right? It's probably not going to cost us our literal lives. So what's keeping us from risking? What keeps us from risking when the cost is so low? Speaking relatively, to be rejected by family because you proclaim the gospel is very difficult. I don't want to make light of that, but like we're probably not going to get skinned alive for it, like some of our brethren in the past have been. But who knows what's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years, and it just we have to gauge that. We need to seek the Lord on that. If I'm not willing to risk now, why would I risk when my head's on the line? Literally, right? But that, that's why we're here, to present ourselves to God as laborers for His mission. He's he secured our salvation so that we're free to lose everything, even to the point of dying for His name. Jesus has secured our lives. We're safe. That's His rationale for asking you to give it away. Not because you're not real unless you die. He's saying, I've secured your salvation. What are you hanging on to? What are you hanging on to? We have to see with the eyes of eternity. Right? The Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I love that. If we will bow down before our Lord and ask for the eyes to see other people in our job, in our school, in our lives, with the eyes through which Jesus looks at these things, we will be moved to take what would be called risks by those who are here on the earth. And beloved, take them. Again, don't think that in order to take risks, you have to move to Indonesia. Again, if that's what you want to do, praise God, we'll help you do that. But if you ever, if, if all you ever think about of risk is that, you'll never take one. Right? Take risks as a student in your school, young people. Take risks as an employee at your job. Take risks as a retiree. You have time. Right? Retirees, you have time. We think we get to play golf until we die. You have time. You can get discount tickets to Mongolia. Be a missionary, right? Relatively speaking, I'm not your Holy Spirit, okay? I hope you understand that, just perspective. Take risks as a wife, take risks as a husband, and listen, people will reject you. You may lose your position at your job. You may lose your family, right? If you open up your home, your carpet might get stained, Right, your, your, your kids might get a cold from another kid. Somebody might break your fine china. Right? You might lose some traditions that you love. All for the sake of the mission. So for eternity by God's grace, in losing, you've gained Christ. Beloved, lose. Lose. Empty yourself of yourself. Jesus calls us to this. 
God is sovereign. He governs everything. He controls everything in this world. We might not know every detail of his plan, but we do know he has the final say and everything from creation to consummation is in his hands. Because our God is sovereign, we should not be paralyzed by our lack of knowledge, but use every opportunity to redeem the time that he's given us since we are sure of the end result. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So, beloved, live. Let go. It's only in letting go that we'll finally realize just how tightly Jesus is holding us. And listen, if you walk away tonight convicted by this, don't be crushed by it. Don't be crushed by it. Pray. Pray, beloved. If God reveals sins to you that you need to repent of, repent. If you're living faithfully where you are, you don't, don't let the preacher make you feel unchristian, right? Just trust in the Lord Jesus. It, it takes some risk. Look, we as a church have to take some risks here, right? It, it's, there's a community around us. We're not reaching them, all right? So don't think that, that my, the burden you might hear coming through in preaching is like you all are doing something and I'm, I'm angry with you. That's not what's happening. There's a harvest here. I don't think we're reaching them. And so it's brought up questions in my heart, in my mind. I'm praying to keep from imposing my personal convictions onto you. I'm praying for that. I'm asking you to pray for me that I would not do that. But, beloved, we, we can't just exist into oblivion. We're, we're, we're not here to make sure the walls stay up and the lights stay on. We're here for the sake of the souls of the people in this valley. And if we aren't going to do that, what are we doing? Right? We can build a club for us to relax in somewhere else, but let's not call it a church, right? So let's take some risks. We won't lose anything.